Welcome to The Lodgecast, a nature and wildlife podcast brought to you by The Beaver Trust. I'm Sophie Pavel. And I'm Eva Bishop. Each month we'll be bringing you the latest news from The Beaver Trust as we start to welcome beavers back to our rivers to restore our countryside and create resilient landscapes. And we'll also be exploring the state of nature in the UK and speak to fascinating experts and inspiring individuals to help us tackle some of those big old questions that we face today. So welcome to the Lodgecast. We are hey. back after a little hiatus and it's so good to be back. It really is. I mean, gosh, it has been a while, hasn't it? I mean, I think you'll agree that it feels like an age since we are back behind the microphone with each other. Um, <laughs> but we haven't exactly been sat twiddling our thumbs, have we? There's been so much going on. It's been absolutely crazy here at Beaver Trust. Yeah. We've launched the Lodge online, which is a brand new part of our website, which is full of interactive activities and videos and, of course, this podcast. Um, and also release our new film, Beavers Without Borders, which we are still slightly overwhelmed with by the positive feedback after it was launched a couple of weeks ago. So it's been all go here uh, in the lodge, as it were. <laughs> yeah, it's been <laughs> it's been really crazy busy, but it is great to be back with the podcast. And we have an amazing series lined up with top guests to see us well into the new year. We're absolutely thrilled to bring this episode to you, given the current debates around land use and farming and how we incentivise creating space for nature. And today's guest has plenty to say on the subject. They definitely do, yeah. So in this episode, which we're recording over Zoom, of course, because there are still restrictions in place around coronavirus, we're going to be delving into an issue that is not only important to us here at Beaver Trust, but it can be a pretty personal one too. We're looking at the importance of access to nature in the UK, as many of us uh, throughout this year, um, while we've been placed under these restrictions, it's really given us an opportunity to reevaluate our relationship with nature. And it's really made us realise in quite a brutal, quite a forced way, how much of a luxury it is to be able to walk out of your front door and be in a nice area of nature in green space. Totally. When we know we need nature now, that's really well proven. But I guarantee that digging into this subject will be more interesting than you first thought. The way that land is owned in England can really restrict our ability to enjoy and experience it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just delighted to say that later in the episode, we'll be joined by author and illustrator Nick Hayes, who has written a gripping book on this very topic called The Book of Trespass. It's a good name, isn't it? Good title for a book. <laughs> <Yeah>. It's intriguing. <laughs> and, um, it is very intriguing. And the first and last time I saw Nick was actually on a video on social media on Double Down News, where he was being interviewed about this issue of trespass and about the access to land. And the more I heard him speak, and he speaks very passionately about it, I just thought, actually, gosh, it's so relevant and it's so topical. And it just really hit home as a person who loves getting outside and being in nature, that this is even a conversation, that we're we are debating our access to land. And it kind of left me feeling like, why isn't everybody talking about it? Exactly so. How often do people stop and think these valuable rights removed so long ago will be influencing so many aspects of their mm, life? Definitely. But before we get into the juicy stuff 
and the Book of Trespass, let's shine a spotlight back on our favourite rodents, the beaver, and kick off with our awesome beaver fact off. Now, in the first episode of the Lodgecast, Eva and I introduced the concept of this fact off, where basically we each present a fact to each other on the podcast, and we battle it out to see which fact is the best. So we're going to do that this time, and uh, hopefully I will win as Eva triumphantly won last time. We'll see, we'll see. I've got a good one. (laughs) Uh, So last episode, we chatted about uh, beaver (laughs) teeth and how they're impregnated with iron to help them with their hardwood feeding behaviour. And also about the fact that beaver wetlands can be an amazing carbon sink and store carbon in this time of climate change. But this time, let's talk about water. Let's talk about how beavers can help us mitigate extreme flooding events Um, So beavers, as we know, build dams and the physical presence of these dams can actually work to slow the flow of water. So you have a dam in the middle of a body of water and instead of that body of water taking maybe minutes or hours to get from A to B, this dam can suddenly increase that time and maybe it takes days for it to get from A to B. So what that does is that basically allows everything to just have a little bit more time to cope with an increased level of water say if we have loads and loads of rain like we've had recently and Mm. it just allows us to sort of cope with flooding it allows farmland more time to soak it up and I think it's an amazing addition to flood defences when man-made flood defences can be huge huge uh hugely expensive uh pieces of infrastructure so there's my fact beavers can help mitigate flooding events uh and is increasingly relevant as we head into a rainier bout of weather yeah okay how can you top that that is one of the <laughs> best facts and probably one of the best known ones as well and given all the flooding it's bound to be a popular one however for my fact Ugh. i give you flooding's bigger sister drought so the reason's the same beavers build dams so they feel safe and they have a depth of water and this network of dams slows the flow with landscapes becoming sponges they hold far greater amounts of water Flooding ends, your landscape dries up, and but the beaver ponds still hold the water in these periods of dry spell. So it's crucially important in times of increasing drought with the effects of climate change and the extremes we're going to feel in this country. Mm. And the life that that water storage brings for wildlife, for plant life and for humans is really crucial. It literally means a rodent is helping manage our water supply. Thank you, beavers. So can I just expand on my wonderful, awesome beaver fact? Sure, I think you need and to. And offer a case study. <laughs> <laughs> sure, okay. Um, so, you know our lovely colleague, Chris Jones, who owns the Cornwall Beaver Project um, and is Beaver Trust Director of Restoration. Well, one of the whole reasons why he brought beavers in a few years ago was to help mitigate against flooding events. So he lives in the Laddock Valley in Cornwall, which is lovely and lush and green and wet. And he thought, well... I could invest in expensive artificial flood structures or I could get these ecosystem engineers who will not only help slow the peak flow of water and help the impacts of flooding, but they will boost biodiversity and all the other wonderful things that beavers do. So there we go. Real life example. And he did see a 50% drop in the peak flow, didn't he? Which is pretty cool for the village downstream. He did. I mean, you can't really argue with that, let's be honest. No, but this year he also used the water stored in his beaver ponds to irrigate his land, which is pretty awesome during drought when farmers around him didn't have access to water. 
So, uh, who do we think won that one? Well, instead of making our lovely producer Emma decide, we put it to you, the lovely listeners. So head over to our social media to vote. And don't forget to hashtag FactOff and at BeaverTrust. And we look forward to seeing your votes there. Drought, drought, drought. I look forward to winning (laughs) this time. (laughs) Right, right, right. Let's get down to the exciting stuff. The beautiful British landscape. We love it and all we believe it holds. Getting out into nature is vitally important for our mental and physical well-being. And it's something we've all been reminded of this year, isn't it, Sophie? Oh, totally, totally. I mean, spending time outside in nature every day for no matter how long, it could be 10 minutes, it could be an hour. But the whole act of getting outside and being in the fresh air has been found to really decrease feelings of stress, depression, anxiety, and can really boost happiness and even feelings of self-confidence. And I don't know about you, but I can it sure does. feel it. You know, you can really feel it in your body when you get out. If you've had a screen day and you've been hunched over a computer, you get outside for 20 minutes, stretch your legs, you physically feel so much better. Yeah, you do. It's a dose of medicine, isn't it? I get out to the veg patch whenever I can. Where do you go for your dose of greenery? Uh, It depends. I mean, during lockdown, I've just been re-exploring just the footpath down at the end of the road uh, where my brother and I used to go play when we were young children (laughs) and go make our dens. So it's just been really nice to revisit those areas. Really nice. And there's that idyllic picture of footpath access isn't there sort of winding across fields but for most of England's 56 million inhabitants much of the green and blue space around us is inaccessible Mm. did you know that half the land is owned by less than one percent of the population that's a staggering amount and the general public yeah it it is totally nuts and the general public are actually excluded from 92 percent of our country and 97 percent of our waterways And this is all underpinned by trespass laws. That is bonkers. bonkers. I mean, I can't really compute that, to be honest, um, because it just feels so wonderful to be, it just feels so right to be able to get outside and explore those places. What was interesting is that earlier this week, something very cool happened as more than 100 authors, musicians, actors and artists wrote to Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, asking for an extension to the public's right to roam over the English countryside. And in this letter, they urged the Prime Minister to give people just purely the freedom to connect with nature and end this, quote, untenable position over land rights. I mean, it seems crazy that they had to go to that extent to ask for something that seems so basic as a human right Mm, completely so one of the authors um, is Guy Shrubsole and he's calling for an extended right to roam and this is a new campaign possibly a bold move he says but to quote him its effects would resonate for generations to come and so it's really really important stuff Mm. and we're really fortunate to have the co-author of this letter and book author and illustrator Nick Hayes here with us today virtually of course and he's undertaken astonishing levels of research into the history and laws of our country um, and land access for his recent book. Yeah, so in this book of Trespass by Nick, which was published earlier this year, he explores some of the unknown corners of the British countryside, which are off limits to most, and questions the inequality of land ownership and access in a very powerful way. Yeah, a bit that really stood out to me as a swimmer and paddleboarder and general um, water lover is that I'm actually breaking the law if I swim down any stretch of river because the ownership is so complex and the crown even owns the actual water. It's it's amazing. So it's, it's something that we need to understand more and I'm delighted that he's here to talk about it with us. 
Nick Hayes, welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. Yeah, really, really brilliant. And joining from your boat, um, I've uh, listened to your audible version of the book and I thought that factually it was absolute dynamite. So we wanted to start by asking, why were you compelled to write the book? You know, what problem are we facing? Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me as well. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, why did I write the book? I guess uh, there's probably two answers to that. One, uh, I used to go, or I still do go, trespassing, not not as a sort of deliberate civil disobedience protest against the unfairness of land ownership and, in the UK, but, um, but just because I like to draw. And, uh, you know, there's this sense that uh, people are always banging on on Twitter, like sending me messages saying, like, uh, we've got an amazing rights of way network. We've got 120,000 kilometers of uh, footpath in England. Why do you want more? And actually sketching's like a really good example of why you might want more. Because if the oak tree just over the way through the woodland that says private no entry that's shut off because it's used for pheasant shooting for an elite set of uh, people in a very small amount of time in the year, if that oak tree is more appealing to draw than the one on the footpath, then shouldn't the onus be on someone explaining to me why I shouldn't be allowed to draw it as long as I'm causing no harm and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm leaving no trace or litter, uh, then where really is the crime uh, of me snipping over the fence? But then I think the book, I really decided that I needed to write a book when um, I was just on a train back from Brighton and uh, on a Friday night and it was ram-packed, like not even elbow space. And... Um, so I went and sat in the first class and there was just two, there was a couple there. Uh, they were so haughty and so snooty and so um, uh, so kind of uh, patronising to me. They, did, they basically just called the guard and they said that I had absolutely no right to be there and just treated me like a sort of cartoon prole. Like I wow, was uh, on a train. some middle Gosh. ages turnip eating uh, oik. And I was like, <laughs> And, and then suddenly, the, as, as the guard kind of um, hoiked me out, there was, you know, the same feelings of shame as if I'd done something wrong. Uh, and it occurred to me that this was the perfect analogy for land ownership in England. You've got all this space mm. reserved for mm. the elite few that can afford it. And then the absolute rest of us, the 99% of England, rammed into either the second-class carriage or in lockdown, Bournemouth Beach or just generally national parks, if you can afford the petrol to go there. And the rest of this vast open space is reserved for the sort of leisure and pleasure uh, of people whose families uh, stole it off, you know, the Commonwealth uh, several hundred years ago. So as I was being hoiked out of uh, the first class carriage, I thought, blow this for a laugh, I'm going to write <laughs> Nick, as you're speaking, it just strikes me how almost ridiculous this conversation is. The fact that our freedom to walk outside and be in the land and connect with it is being challenged and being threatened. And I think um, there are interesting parallels to draw with the whole beaver conversation because if I'm sure you're aware that beavers have been in the press a lot this year and the they have so much science behind them to celebrate and to advocate for them and the fact that they should be back in our landscape the benefits massively outweigh the costs of conflict and and the fact that you know we are bringing the second biggest rodent in the world 
back into our landscapes that have changed so much in 400 years. And so it just feels as environmentalists and conservationists and, you know, our work is grounded in science. It feels frustrating that there's even a debate and there's even this conversation and it's taking so long to make a decision that just seems like a no brainer. Um, so similarly with access to the land and trespassing and ownership, why is this even a debate when humans have evolved to walk and roam as bipedal mammals, why are we having this conversation when there are so many other things that we should be spending time on? Yeah, it's a really, I mean, it's a really cool question. I mean, <laughs> I'd rather be lying in a field than campaigning to lie in a field, to be honest. <laughs> I, I think fundamentally what it is, is that we're all talking together in right now in a kind of coven of like-minded uh, kind of just nature enthusiasts. Um, but the point is, and this is what buttresses this, uh, this sort of cult of exclusion, as I call it in the book, is that we've been cut off from nature as a society for so long that we've forgotten what we've lost. When, when we did the, um, uh, we, we launched a brief campaign to uh, stop the criminalization of trespass. And actually, it, it was way more successful than we could have imagined. Uh, we got 130,000 signatures. Um, and, and all that really oh, wow. does was guarantee that the government have to debate it in Parliament instead of just pushing it through. What's so fascinating about it is that with the signatures comes a map of uh, the density of signatures where the campaign was most popular. And you, could, you can map that with access to the countryside, really. What was fascinating about it is that places wow. uh, like Birmingham that had very little, not just access to the Greenbelt, but also very poor infrastructure to take people from inside the city to outside mm. to the countryside. Whereas places uh, such as Cornwall or uh, Sussex or places with really strong rambling uh, and out, out sort of outward bound movements, that those were where we got the most urgent uh, support. And to me, that sort of illustrated that for if you've been lucky enough to uh, have sort of grown up uh, or been educated uh, in or next to nature, if you've been lucky enough to have a childhood or a couple of experiences that have connected you to, to just the sort of wonder of it, not just mm. oh, how pretty that scene is, but just like just seeing wild animals and just realizing that there is this other huge existence that is kind of above and beyond the kind of human um, and how relaxing and awe-inspiring that is, uh, then you really care about your rights to be able to connect to that. So I would say we need to have this conversation, but we need to find a way of making the conversation vivid. People. Not, not a privilege. Well, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things that lockdown has done. I think even if you live near a right of way, if you're a mum or a dad, you're too busy taking your kids to, I don't know, swimming lessons or, you know, whatever, like, uh, gets in the way. But all of that's been shut down. And now lockdown, all of a sudden, these sort of local areas that have always been there uh, are the only option now. And I think people have, people have forged those connections with their outdoor, their local outdoor spaces mm. in such a way that maybe it makes these kind of conversations a bit easier to have now. 
that campaign sounds brilliant and we'll, we'll watch with interest um, what happens with the parliamentary debate. But on to the, 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 the other one currently, we've heard a lot about trespass and you've launched um, the Right to Roam campaign with Guy Shrubsall. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about it? And for our listeners, what, what can people do if they care about this stuff? Well, I'll answer that one first. Please sign up to righttorome.org.uk for all sorts of reasons, but perhaps the most fun will be uh, kind of artist-led trespasses uh, across... Oh, amazing. Uh, you know, there's a lot of poets and there's a lot of uh, landscape artists and there's a lot of folk musicians or musicians from every genre uh, that um, appeal on a sort of cross-partisan level. So there is something really interesting about artists for us that uh, these are people that kind of express our love of nature in a way that we wish we could, you know, like they, they do it so vividly and with such talent. Uh, but actually they appeal to people um, in a way that sort of lifts us out of the trenches of uh, party politics. Uh, land rights campaigning has always been seen as a real kind of uh, dyed red Marxist socialist kind of um, uh, just pursuit. Hmm. And obviously like the NHS, it basically is socialism because we're just looking to uh, uh, to improve the public health for everybody and not just those that can afford it. But actually, like the NHS, it can become something that um, is adored and cherished by people regardless of your blue or red or yellow rosette kind of thing. Mm. But what we're trying to do is... It's basically on Monday, the 30th of November, was the anniversary of the Countryside and Rights of Way Act. And that's 20 years since the Labour government opened up moorland, mountain, heath and downland to public access. Is that all? 20 years? 20 years is how long we've had. Well, yeah. okay. But what that really does is allow you to ramble over 8% of our land. Rivers are not covered, uh, like all the different activities that say the Scottish right to roam allows and encourages horse riding, mountain biking, paddle boarding, kayaking, wild swimming, uh, wild camping. All of these are still forbidden. But our point is, while, while these areas of access remain um, in the Peak District or in, in, largely, in, in areas that are largely remote from the majority of the population of England, in terms of our mental health of a nation, in terms of our physical health, the Countryside and Rights of Way Act has basically been useless. What we need to do is extend the Crow Act, as it's called, so that it extends to people's doorsteps. So we're campaigning for Greenbelt. Uh, there's something like 30 million people that would have easy access to nature if only they were allowed to walk the verges of farmers' fields in Greenbelt. Mm. Um, we're campaigning for rivers, uh, and we're campaigning for woodland as well because, you know, the Japanese practice of Shinrin-yoku has basically now been proved that, you know, immersing yourself in the essential oils of, um, of trees for two hours can improve, can, can raise your immune system for 30 days after. Is that forest bathing? Absolutely. You can now in England go to Oxfordshire and uh, pay to go on a sort of four-day forest bathing course. That's bollocks. But again, it, it makes it a privilege, though, doesn't it? Again, it's like you can only enjoy this if you can afford to pay, to pay for it. Do you think that even if people get a whiff 
of the fact that there are regulations in place that might prevent them from being able to enjoy the outdoors, that that would just be the final straw and that would just totally switch them off from nature even more so that it's actually just preventing people from even beginning. You know, you can have a relationship with the natural world at any age. You don't have to start from a young age. It, you can start when you're 80 and it still be really beneficial. But it almost seems like a really dangerous prospect because it could deter a whole generation of people from the outdoors just because they might suddenly, you know, we're so used to regulation at the moment because of lockdown. We're so used to being told what to do. So this might prevent people from even having an inkling of an interest if they feel that they're going to be barred from their local space. It just seems like just a, a ridiculous prospect. Absolutely. I mean, to be honest, when I was doing that book, I, I kind of, I ended up realising that the the walls and the barbed wire fences were the least of what blocks us from the countryside. You know, I'm a mm. cis, middle-class, privileged white male, uh, you know, and so even the notion of getting confronted by um, the authority of the gamekeepers or something, I, I'm in a powerful position in society. Um, when it comes to race in the countryside, like... Uh, uh, just to put it very simply, people of colour do not feel welcome in the largely white English countryside. I tell a story in the book of Benjamin Zephaniah, like our nation's, one of our nation's greatest poets and brilliant in Peaky Blinders and just an all-round cool dude, was uh, going for a jog with a mate of his, also black, in the Essex countryside on a field. And there were two police helicopters like called out there had been like, uh, you know, numerous uh, reports of two black men running away from something. Oh, oh my God. That was about a decade ago, but no, nothing, nothing has changed. So, so there is, for people of colour, there is a barrier, uh, not just the mm. fact that disproportionately uh, they are centred around urban communities. You know, there's very, very few people in countryside areas. Uh, but also this sense that when you go to the countryside, there's people staring at you and there's people making judgments of you. So there's that. And there's class. Like, as we were saying, that, that there's crap bus services uh, taking you from the suburbs to the countryside. There's, um, But there's also the sense of, you know, gender. Like, uh, I'd, I'm speaking to uh, two women now. Like, uh, do you feel comfortable wild camping, uh, going to sleep on your own at night? I do, but I've I've had lots of people on social media ask me how do you get over the fear of being in the outdoors alone as a young woman? And I think it's more that perhaps it's not from personal experience that they felt that. It's more just a, a sort of, I don't know, just a general vibe of it being a kind of hostile, unfriendly, inaccessible place. Um, and, and that's a cultural thing, isn't it? It's a cultural it, shift. Yeah, that we massively. Need to make. It's a social issue more than anything. And Nick, you mentioned that you may have had run-ins with, with landowners and gamekeepers and things. I can't imagine that, I mean, it sounds like quite a journey that it took to, to write this book. Did you encounter, have you got any specific anecdotes or stories of tricky situations during your travels for the book? Well, to be honest, I was kind of, I mean, not as many as I was probably hoping for, because obviously I'm <laughs> like jumping over the Duke of Buclu's wall, I'm, I'm aware that I've got to write a chapter on this at some point and something needs to happen. Uh, but the majority of it, because, I mean, there's just so much space behind uh, old manorial park estate brick walls that um, 
you know, I didn't hide at all, but I just walked through the woods. Uh, I walked across the meadows on the verges of the farmlands, found a nice place to camp, uh, slept the night, woke up, <laughs> walked back. And the majority of time, just because they, these estates are so enormous, uh, mm. no one saw me. How did you feel? Did you feel naughty or did you feel kind of like like a sort of escapee or something? <laughs> well, a lot of people have asked me, uh, are you just a sort of naughty person? Do you enjoy doing <laughs> like, naughty things? Is it a hobby of yours? Yeah. <laughs> and like uh, if trespassing or rambling suddenly becomes legal, then what else naughty am I going to find to do? Um, <laughs> but no, the uh, to be honest, the sense... Uh, um, the sense that someone's going to come and get you provides a general sense of unease that was not as pleasurable as uh, just being able to relax uh, mm. in just as beautiful and at home where I've got permission from the farmer to be. Um, so I didn't enjoy any of the that kind of octane, adrenaline kind of sense of like jumping over the wall. And, and then uh, the, the confrontation with gamekeepers always has a sense of... Um, at, at the very least patronizing or you're talked down to uh sometimes there were like uh, deer stalkers with guns sometimes there was just like a very aggressive shouty people in four by fours but to be honest like all of that kind of stuff there's not a lot that they can do to you they don't want to have to call the police because the police probably won't come uh because it's just not that important I mean, I was hoiked out of the River Loddon, uh, a stretch owned by the Duke of uh, Wellington. And basically, three different sets of uh, people it took to, to get me off, <laughs> off the river. Out of Whoa. The but they, they were just so aggressive about it. And then once you realise that their bite is very gummy and, <laughs> and that all they've got is their bark, then you realise, actually, if you just let them shout it out, you can pretty much just carry on what you're doing. So it's a process of intimidation for them, really, isn't it? There, there was a sense when I was on some of the Duke's land, uh, you know, with the castle on the silhouette, you know, and going to camp at night and then hearing all the hunting dogs baying at the moonlight. Every now and then there was this sense of, like, well, I don't actually know... Like, I know what a duke is, but I don't know, like, what their power consists of. Is it legal to dungeon me? <laughs> not, but, like, okay. I still don't know. There is one where you do know. I, I really want to ask. Did you touch the Hern Oak? Did I touch the Hern Oak? Oh, I can't. <laughs> You're not allowed to say, are you? Can you give us, like, a, a silent... <laughs> well, I can, tell you, I can tell you the truth, actually. The reason why I had to, like, just to explain for people that haven't read the book that the book ends with uh, this kind of Italian job, kind of, uh, you know, teetering on the precipice. Do I... There's basically a place just outside. It's where Harry and Meghan, they've just given over Frogmore Cottage to whatever Princess Eugenie or to whoever else is allowed to exclusively have access to this 400 acres of former parkland that were enclosed by Queen Victoria, simply because Prince Albert wanted to bathe naked <laughs> um very recently that became criminal to trespass that along with 15 other sites Lo lots of those sites are kind of fair enough they're like gchq they're nuclear sites they're kind of um protected sites for security but also for health and safety uh not this place so i thought uh, it would be great to um uh, trespass that place 
uh, because there's a tree <laughs> in it that, is, that celebrates my favourite pagan deity, who's a guy called Hearn, who's kind of like the descendant of Kernanos, who's kind of the descendant of Pan. He's a sort of god of wild unruliness, um, you know, which means a lot to me. But to, to trespass that place and, and get caught would be to be thrown in prison for a year, like, a, you know, absurdly disproportionate. But a year before I was going to, like when I was planning this stuff, we had a family Christmas and I was chatting to my brother that I was going to go and do the Hearn Oak and go and touch it and all of this kind of thing. And my brother <laughs> works for the government. He works for the civil service. And Brilliant. But every five years they have to do a kind of interview and a background check. And, and he said very categorically that uh, a charge of criminal trespass against his brother would sort of put his job at risk because it would be treated as an attack on the crown. And again, it's how monopolised, centralised power chooses to define the actions of the people. Like every, every trespass is defined by English law as an attack on the owner of the property. It's very aggressive language, isn't it? Very aggressive. It's very macho. It's very male. And it's, it's, wrong as well it's just like a legal fiction that mm. has been created to basically redefine what is in fact a very gentle deeply essential need to connect with nature as an attack on the duke of beaufort or the duke of bedford or the duke of rutland i don't care who these men are i've got nothing against them they mean nothing to me in my life uh, yet the law seeks to redefine me sleeping in gorgeous beach woodland as an attack on the Duke of Beaufort. It's silly. And yet it has hold, held our country in thrall for a thousand years. Wow, this is so fascinating. There's so much in this conversation. And um, let's chat to Nick in a few more moments, but just quickly look at why Beaver Trust are so keen to focus on this issue of land ownership, because we need a much greater area of our countryside restored and healthy um, to combat the ecological crisis of soils, you know, the combined crisis of soils, water, food production, biodiversity loss. Um, but many of us feel really powerless to make that transition because we're not land stewards and we need those that are to choose restorative practices. And just quickly, what are these restorative practices? What do they look like? Well, I think it's about rebalancing, isn't it? It's rebalancing our use of the land, our relationship with nature, our demands of the land and our space for biodiversity. Um, and you can do that through all sorts of um, mechanisms, policy, farming practices, but also this cultural shift that we just explored with Nick and our expectation, the public expectation of interactions and relationship with nature. We need to welcome wild spaces back and allow habitats naturally to improve their resilience against climate change. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's just a huge issue, isn't it? And I think we could talk for hours about this, but I'm really keen for us to yeah. share a bit more of our chat with Nick because he just goes into some more great content that we can't wait to share with you. Yeah, brilliant. Because as well as his first class trespassing around England, Nick is also a very talented artist. So we had to ask him, how does he combine his love of nature with art? Nick, you use animal names to head up each chapter of your book, which is a beautiful way to, to lay it out. Um, how does nature, storytelling and arc work together for you? What does your process look like? 
Um, well, I guess it's a kid. All I've ever done is like uh, drawn foxes with hats on or like uh, <laughs> rabbits uh, by fires or like uh, I, I basically all I read was animals of farthing wood, like uh, wood chipped down nice. in the willows, all of that kind of thing. Anthropomorphism has never really been in my world such a crime. Like you pretending that animals have human features. I understand uh, the arrogance or the human ego that is sort of projected onto animals like that. But also, I'd like to give anthropomorphism, a, you know, a bit more space in in human culture because actually, I think it comes from a sense of uh, being fascinated with animals or playing with them imaginatively. Um, and so for me, animals or just, uh, just the sort of mad, wild spray of a woodland, you know, where there's nothing telling you how to think or where to go or how to act, I, I find like profoundly liberating. And so just to walk in these kind of wild spaces is something that allows the mind to slip out of the regular corridors and the kind of, uh, you know, the straight lines that it usually goes in. Um, so really important. All I've ever done is drawn that kind of stuff just because it's, I just, I don't know, it's a way of loving them really, I suppose. Mm. One of the, one of the beautiful things that beavers um, offer us is this, a belief in a more wild and healthy landscape. So if you go to beaver wetland, like visit Chris's um, enclosed site at Cornwall, it's really wild and it's um, unmanaged by humans. And you start to envis envisage that across the rest of our riverscapes and you start to believe in just something a bit more like a healthy ecosystem do you have a, a vision of how our land access should or could work how we can visit these wild places without trashing them and re reducing that if we are opening up the land to everyone in terms of litter which we've been thinking lots about because of lockdown and vandalism and stuff and i, I really want to be able to look into a landowner's eyes and say we've sorted the litter problem. And the only way I can think of doing that is, because um, there's this, this very moral side to litter. People say you should pick up your own litter. Uh, and people, because of that, won't really pick up other people's litter because the problem is once, you, once I've picked up like 18 Lucasade bottles from the side of the Avon, uh, I take it back home, I put it in a bin liner, and then it gets buried in the earth. And there is a real deep sense of futility about that. Like, uh, you know, the real problem with litter is not that people do the littering, but the litter itself. So that's way beyond my pay grade. Mm. Like, that's, that's a systemic government issue. Yeah. But in terms of looking at a landowner in the eye and saying, I can guarantee you that there won't be an increase in litter, I think we need to go back to the old commons paradigm again and that people need to take the responsibility to pick up other people's litter. And I, I think there will always be a few people that litter who don't care, mm. don't see themselves as part of a community, don't care. Um, but it's for the people that do care, as unfair as that might sound, but I think it's quite noble and honourable to go and uh, pick up the litter. And there's trash-free trails is a really good example, or surfers against sewage. There's any number of uh, either large or small-scale volunteer forces that have found that, like, you know, they can go around and pick up litter. But more than that, the act of picking up litter 
improves people's mental health. Nick, we are rapidly nearing the end of our time together, but um, as a nature podcast from the Beaver Trust, we have to ask, as we ask all our guests, have you ever seen a beaver? And what excites you about these animals? Are they the ultimate trespasser? Ooh, big one. Like it. I wish, I mean, they would be if trespass included uh, building like wood lodges and... uh, <laughs> they're more than the ultimate trespasser, I think. I've never seen a beaver, and they're like cartoon characters to me. Beavers, they're kind of cute. Uh, I like the idea that they get busy. They don't just sit around all day like cows, kind of thing. They uh, <laughs> they do something for their day. <laughs> I'm quite pro that. But I've never seen one. But um, with any luck, as a result of this conversation, you guys will take me on a kayak trip somewhere. For sure. And I can. And that fills me with excitement. And the sense that they are large, but non-threatening, that they can kind of change the landscape in a way that just encourages so much more biodiversity is just really good. No, I'm, I'm 100% signed up to more beavers. And also, I look quite like a beaver. So <laughs> <laughs> there's a certain sort of bearded, uh, sort of bulky males that will probably become more popular aesthetically. Uh, as beavers become more prevalent. (laughs) (laughs) Nick the beaver in the next enclosure release. (laughs) There is an interesting trend in the people who work around beaver conservation that the more you you start to think about beavers, uh, you feel like you start to look like a beaver. (laughs) I think we all think we look like beavers in one way or another. (laughs) (laughs) Last but not least, uh, you heard our fact off earlier. We're going to need a decision from you on uh, flooding versus drought and beavers slowing the flow. But they're the same thing, aren't they? They're the, they're the same. They are the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's the same flood thing. versus drought. Which, which do I think is worse, <laughs> flood or drought? <laughs> yeah, basically. I think flooding is uh, um, more uh, is is more relevant to uh, the English landscape at the moment. I won. <laughs> that's that's torn your kayak trip. <laughs> <laughs> So if you'd like the chance to win a copy of Nick's wonderful book, The Book of Trespass, then do head over to our social media channels at Beaver Trust and join our very flashy competition. Um, All you have to do is like and share the competition post and we'll announce the winner in a few weeks just before Christmas. Or if you can't wait for a copy of the book, why not get out and support your local bookstore? Buy buy it for someone for Christmas. Now, Sophie Papel, we come to my second favourite moment of the episode. Oh, God. It's my turn to spring some quality quizzical questions on you in our quick quiz round. And you will be delighted. God, I'll say that after a couple of beers. (laughs) (laughs) So you're going to love this one. The topic is inspiring women in conservation. And I've got three... Oh, niche. I like it. Uh, Right up your street, I think. (laughs) Uh, I've got three good questions for you. Starting fairly easily. Right. Um, are you ready? I am, yes. I'm a bit worried that, as you said, they're starting fairly easy, that that means they're going to get progressively harder. But they're only three, <laughs> so it can't get that hard. Okay, okay, true, true. Cool, I'm ready. Question number one. Who led mm-hmm. a 55-year study on wild chimpanzees and said, we are not as different from the rest of the animal kingdom as we used to think? I would hazard a punt and say the wonderful Jane Goodall. You are absolutely right. It is the very special UN messenger of peace, (gasps) Jane Goodall. Well done. Good start. Good. One out of one. Question number two. 
Which queen of conservation once said, "Those who contemplate the beauty of the earth find reserves of strength that will endure as long as life lasts." Oh gosh, <laughs> that's quite. Open, I mean, I want it? to say Jane Goodall again. I can give you um, a little clue. Uh, uh, I'd like it, yes. She she wrote a fairly important work called Silent Spring. Oh, Rachel Carson. Well done, well done, very nice. Saved. (laughs) Little top tip. Right, and last but not least, question number three. Molly Beattie was the first female director of the US Fish and Wildlife Service. She started 15 new wildlife reserves in her three years there and introduced what creature to the Rocky Mountains? So this is probably going to be a guess, but, you know, it's a reintroduction theme. Oh, massively. Massively. Guess, uh, what creature into the Rocky Mountains? Oh, oh, I don't know. Um, let's go with, for a laugh, a golden eagle. Oh, I like that guess. It is, in fact, the grey wolf. Which was previous oh, native well, yes, to Eurasia as well. And basically, it's a large dog. So it's about time we brought those back too. <laughs> well, quite. It's well, a short I step enjoyed that quiz. <laughs> I enjoyed the niche round. I enjoyed uh, the, the brain exercise that it gave me. Good, good, um, good. So th- thank you very much. Anytime. I'm looking forward to yours next week. Before we go, if you would like some more beavery goodness or some more of Sophie, We have released our new beautiful film, Beavers Without Borders, um, available on our YouTube channel. And it was created by the super talented filmmaker Nina Constable and hosted by Sophie herself. So do go and check it out. Yes. And if you if if you want to know where it is, uh, Beaver Trust now has a YouTube channel, which is exciting. So if you just go into YouTube and type in Beaver Trust, you'll see the film right there pinned at the top. You can't miss it. Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of The Lodgecast by Beaver Trust. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you're listening to this on. And do leave us a five-star review and tell all your friends about it. And once again, a huge thank you to the amazing Nick Hayes for joining us today. We feel suitably inspired and invigorated and informed about trespassing and access to land. And you can also enjoy more from us and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes on our social media. So look out for us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Beavertrust or visit our website, beavertrust.org. And please don't forget, this podcast is a mixture of fact and opinion. It was hosted today by Sophie Pavel and Eva Bishop. It was produced and edited by Emma Brisbane for Beaver Trust. <laughs>